Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a bass with the King Singers live from London. It's Jonathan Howard, everybody. Hey. There you go. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being had. This is, this is wonderful to cross uh, transcontinental lines with Zoom and have well, you what's on. What's so good is, yeah, because it's, because it's uh, in lockdown, I get to do this from bed and no one can judge me. It's That's really right. nice. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone's judging anybody these days about how yeah. it's as long as you're as long as you're getting by. But thank you so much for being here to talk about da, 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 da. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. So usually the first question I ask is, how did this show come into your life? But you were born into this show's life, sort of, it seems yeah, to me. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> the thing is, right, so I remember listening to this album hundreds and hundreds of times with my parents in the car. And I sang all the time in the car. So I knew all the words to all the songs. I could, and, and this, it's, it's a sung through musical, right? So that there is no mm-hmm. word. There are no words. It's just spoken things apart from the musical. So I could sing the whole musical. Um, and I didn't really know much more about my family's connection to the musical until very recently when I was talking to my dad about it. And he said, oh, did you know that I was in the very first performance of Joseph? And I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was at, a, well, kind of, it's, it's like, it's a bit like a, a middle school, I guess. Um, or in, in England, we'd call it like a, a middle school or a prep school, certainly. He was at school when he was... 10 11 at a place called Collet Court, which is in London. And um, the very first version of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat was written for um, kind of solo performer and choir, boys' choir. Mm-hmm. And he was in that boys' choir. So it was a choir of about 30 people. And I think you saw, I sent you the photo of my dad yeah. as an 11 year old on the very left in the back row. And it's, um, yeah, it's funny because at the time, I think it was only a 15 minute musical. It started short. I think I looked this up oh, yeah, very short. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. 15 minutes. And it was called a pop cantata. And then they extended it slightly. And I think it became about half an hour. And I just listened to that one, uh-huh. to, that, to, um, to, to that version today, because I didn't realize that there was this interim version, which was recorded in 1969. And it's on, um, it's on Apple Music. And it's totally worth listening to because i think is it roger daltrey from the who i think maybe singing it it's kind of nuts it yeah Um, it's and and tim rice is on it too tim rice is the pharaoh and the but the vocals and lead guitar are by uh david daltrey but there's like there's like a hammond organ and stuff in it i mean it's really funny oh yeah that's only half an hour that's only half an hour long so it misses out some of the the songs you might know from the fuller version Mm -hmm. and then i was born in 1987 and I don't think it actually made it to the West End until about 1990, 1991, if I remember correctly. 
it was the first thing I think that Android ever wrote. And then it was the other stuff that made him famous. And then this was revisited. Mm -hmm. um, or the first big kind of musical work. And so the extended version, which is the one we all know, which is about an hour and 20 minutes long, I think got to the West End in the early 1990s. And it was the first musical I ever saw. I saw it at the Wimbledon Theatre, which was very near where I grew up. Um, I was in a neighbouring little town. Um, and it was 1993. And playing Joseph was a guy called Philip Schofield, who is now a very famous British daytime TV presenter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I could sing along to the whole musical again. Then I knew all the colors of his coat. I still know all the brothers. Um, and like, I mean, just, it's so funny when you know something from such a young age, how much it sticks with you. Um, but yeah, I, when, when I was thinking about what was the, the original cast that moved me so much, the cast recording, this was the one where I thought like, I actually really, it's not only did I know the kind of the original West End recording mm -hmm. incredibly well, um, but also kind of the original musical sits very like dearly now with me because of my family's connection to it. Or my dad's oh, sure. Particular. I mean, yeah, that's well, it's just it's funny that like if this was an album you listened to over and over and over again and went to see that your dad never brought up that uh, he was in the show. <laughs> Like he may have done, but like I just don't remember that being. Mm -hmm. it was, I was only aware of it in my adult life very, very recently, and then yeah, he found all these photos of. So I think all of the audience were given um, lyric sheets for the whole thing, so they could follow the story along. And my dad found the lyric sheets. Right. From, I think the second ever performance, which my grandparents, so his parents, went to, um, and that was in Westminster, so right by Westminster Abbey. Mm -hmm. um, they went to, I think, and that was, funnily enough, also, it was the month before, or the same month as the King Singers were founded in 1968, about a, a mile away, less than a mile away. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so 1968, a lot of things happened, which is yeah. to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it's a funny show, uh, and has a weird, like you say, a weird production history in this one act 30 minute version that lasted for a long time and was mounted on the West End as part of like two other shows. It was like a double bill with some other performance that went around, but it wasn't until the 80s or 90s that it actually ended up in the version that I think everybody knows yeah. today. Have you seen the um, kind of the film version that was done in 1990? I think it was no, maybe 2001. It's weird. I watched it last night and I'm sure I'd seen it before, but Donny Osman plays Joseph. And Sir right. Richard Attenborough, Lord Attenborough plays Jacob. Yes, yes. Um, and you've got weird cameos. It's sort of set in a school and they're, 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 the pupils in the school sort of become the children's choir. It's incredibly kind of weird and psychedelic. It has very low production value, but it's quite entertaining. It's a lot like that video of cats they made sometime in the late 90s. Oh, yeah, mixed I've seen with, that to death as well. And of course, Dan, Donny Osmond is an experience within himself anyway. It's a good video. I think it's one of the ones that just got released, right, if I'm not mistaken, re-released that Andrew Lloyd Webber put out. Um, yeah, I think exactly yeah. because of the lockdown, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber said, yes, these things will be available. So yeah. Yeah, so go check it out, everybody. It's a please. It's a trip. It's only an hour and 20 minutes long. I know. You see anything else like it. It does feel. <laughs> on Netflix. It does feel like, um, I had to say, listening, so I'm very familiar with the early 80s Broadway cast album. That's the one that I had. Okay. Um, which is even shorter than this is. But what's so funny about listening to the 91 version, which, for those of you following along at home, does include the mega mix at the which end. Which is one of the greatest musical feats of all time. Had to be Let one of the first you. of those. Go! 
I'm trying to, what, what genre does that fit in? It's like, <laughs> what, what kind of dance music is it? I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of Barry Manilow <laughs> meets the Bee Gees meets, I, I don't know what you call that beat. But I mean, it's it's terrifying, <laughs> and it's very it's. But it is funny that it's like the 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 music theater mega mix kind of became its own thing for a while in the '90s and into the early 2000s, and like shows would release these mega mixes, and they got generally more interesting and more complicated as they went on. But in this sort of nascent stage, it is really just like a parody of a techno song where they put that beat behind it and then mixed in phrases to repeat over and over again, and it is very fun. But it is yeah, yeah, yeah. very basic. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Which I remember we loved when I was in high school. Like, that's kind of all I remember in grade school, whenever that was the, the, the listening to that being like, oh, this is fun and exciting and new ways to hear And that now it just sounds very, very amateurish. <laughs> yeah. But I was struck by... <laughs> Like you say, the show started as a 15-minute version, which I was also very excited to see that the original, uh, at least the the lyrics you sent me, the pictures of the lyrics, the song Potiphar was included, which is one of my favorite songs. It often gets cut when people do short versions of the show. I was like, oh, that's fun. That was in the very, very, very first production. But it's also, it's weird because you get, um, there are certain songs which just sound, that that they obviously were reworked and some of the lyrics are reworked, but also Mm -hmm. like, the the way the kind of the meter works like whether it's like in 6-8 or in 4-4 four, four, whatever sort of change between the songs and I noticed that Potter, the Potiphar song um, is is one which is reasonably untouched actually from the first version it doesn't have the quite the same you know it doesn't kind of get um, have that crazy accelerando each time mm-hmm. in the original but otherwise it's pretty true you know mm-hmm. where some of the other songs have changed massively yes i've gone on big transitions yeah yeah that that one not only is it there but it's it's pretty much the same thing now but it was it was the 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 funny part for me was that listening to how they felt like they kept trying to st- st- like the show i think if you don't the original Broadway production feels like it was probably 80 minutes, you know, like, or maybe less. Yeah. And, and this version feels longer and it feels like they just, they kept finding places to stretch and add sections or add dances or add things. And it just feels funny that like, you know, it started as this very short 15, 30 minute, you know, maybe an hour show that yeah. then somebody was like, well, it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber show and it can't be, like it's got to have an intermission. It's got to be at least two hours. It's got to be like a full theater production. And they keep feeling ways to stretch it out, which yeah. feels very against it. It's such a simple show is one of the things I really like about it. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of like young music theater people like it is because it's very, very easy to follow. It's very simple. Like you say, it's sung through. So you get the whole show on the album and you can just, just ride with it but it does there, there were moments listening re-listening to the 91 that did that we're talking about today that it did feel a little like man you don't need to do another verse of that song like that no that felt- yeah <laughs> no, absolutely and there are some songs which really go on i mean like i the 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 pastiche french one those canaan days
Every time in the car, just being like, fast forward, fast forward. <laughs> well, it's such a, I want, so this is a, one of the things I, I was very interested in it, as not being, not being, uh, being British, uh, sort of assuming that the show feels like to me, it has a lot of roots in pantomime. Um, I think so. Yeah. Is that, uh, okay, good. So, but my other thought was the funny, I like the conceit of, songs being different styles and i think that's nowhere better represented than the pharaoh as elvis i mean that's just such a perfect yeah. perfect thing to do well i was wandering along about the banks of a river when a seven pack cows came about of a night oh yeah and right behind this fine healthy animals seven other cows skinny and vile oh yeah Oh, well, the thing has ate the back house, which I thought would do them good on. Oh, yeah. But it didn't make them battle like such a monster supper shit. Oh, no. Oh, well, the thing has worse than I say, ever, 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 ever. Well, the stream has got my baffle. Hey, Joseph, won't you tell me what I Yeah. But... The, the two choices that confound me, and I wonder if there's something uniquely British about this or if it's just, it's weird to you as well, uh, would be um, those Canaan days and Benjamin Calypso. Oh no, not he. All you can I was I was listening to that yesterday and wondering like in 2020 is that PC? Yeah, you know, like you know, and it's funny. And the reason I say that is because like the the cast. I mean, it's also it's interesting because telling a story from back then there were like no women, which is why the narrator right. I think is so frequent. I mean, the only woman mm-hmm. is Potiphar's wife, who is the one who kind of is the cheater. I mean, who it's isn't like, great? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's not great. Not great. Also played by Joan Collins. Can we just recognize oh. that she's like sixty-five? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, in the it's it's interesting watching back the two thousand one version. The cast is a very white cast, mm-hmm. and yet the only kind of. Uh, non-white character is Benjamin who sings this kind of pseudo reggae song, the Calypso, right? And you think, was this, was this okay? Is this okay? I don't, maybe it's okay. I have, you know, it's it's quite hard to process, but yeah, it's, I agree with you. That's hearing it once again, like, because obviously when you, when you think about the the musical, you start with any dream will do and close every door. And then you might do the one about um, Jacob and Sons. Yeah. Um, and, and all the colors. Or your show um, choir might do Coates. Go, 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 Joseph. You know, go, go, like exactly. Of, yeah. yeah. But you don't get to the Benjamin Calypso very often. No. Right? Do you know what no, I mean? Like, no. No. So, like, that's not what <laughs> so, I I'd forgotten it, if I was totally honest. And then I listened back and then I watched it and I thought, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I've got it. That's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. Wait, I think that actually might have been in the original one. I'm going to look at my. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm going to look at my iTunes here because is that, um, no, actually, no, it's who's the thief. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I actually, I don't know if it is there. 
those Canaan days definitely isn't there. I think you're right. I think this is a kind of an insert to try and create musical variation over a longer period of time. Right. It just feels very, I mean, it's a, it, it makes some sense in the, in the sense that like, Benjamin has just been accused of stealing. They're trying to talk Joseph out of it and try to be funny and distracting. So it's a fun number. So I get that. But why Calypso music doesn't really like it has no, I, I don't, and I think in America, there's a tendency to look at that and go, oh, that must be British. But I'm glad to hear that it's not. It's just like incredulous to you a little bit as well, well as it is I think, to me. I think that there, there, is, there is the Commonwealth angle of like the Caribbean being mm. uh, like the colonial relationship with the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, there, that sort of weirdly, it doesn't feel kind of culturally odd to think back to when this was written, to think like this music would have been music or the style of music would have at least have been known. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah. I think now feels like slightly inappropriate pastiche. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, maybe that, that's, that's if, I, if I had to choose my favorite song from the musical, I don't think that would be it. That, that wouldn't way. make the, wouldn't make that. Yeah. One more, yeah, one more, that's another one of these, isn't it? One more angel in heaven, which oh, I yeah. like. There's one more angel in heaven. What do we call that stuff? It's sort of country, isn't it? It is. It's it's yeah, very sad country music. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a stuff, sort of country blues. You'd almost say like not because not like blues music, yeah. but like country and western. You know that very yeah grand old Opry I, kind of style. I, can I say I really hadn't thought about it in those terms until you mentioned it. This idea of um, so I mean obviously yeah, the Elvis impersonation. Mm-hmm. Is is an, is another example of this, but yeah, the the in order something we think about all the time in in the King's Singers is like how do you create as just one artist six of you on stage, no backing, no nothing. How do you create enough variation over the course of a program of maybe ninety minutes, and then you add an interval and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And like obviously we vary repertoire, we vary um, how we perform, but also what we perform. And it's quite interesting actually to see like how brazenly it's been done now. Now, the, now I'm thinking about it in these terms. It's a mm-hmm. bit like, it's sort of, is it appropriation or is it deliberately saying? Like, is it, is it actually education? Is it like introducing people to like different, in a really fun mm-hmm. way? Like, is it, and particularly given this is so designed for young audiences, like, is it engaging with children in a way where they're, they're now thinking about different styles of music which they hadn't encountered before? Like, it's actually quite a nice way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think that's probably a very generous reading, but I think it's yeah. a good it's a good it's a but it's a good thing to say. I don't think it, it does it does underline a point which I don't think there's, there's no malice here. There there may be some. Uh, it's also calypso music. Like if it was reggae, I might have a little bit more of a mm, yeah. okay gang. But like it it just doesn't it doesn't feel like they thought it through that much because there's not it's except for the king singing for the pharaoh singing like elvis who was the king so there you go it doesn't really feel like there's a reason why one more angel in heaven is a country western song and, and why um those canaan days is that sort of parisian almost feels like a looney tunes cartoon uh yeah 
it's so it doesn't it just feels like one of them either Angela Weber or Tim Rice had the idea and like oh this will be funny we'll do it this way and then they did it um which also speaks to kind of how it was conceived though as you say like it was conceived as a, like a small cantata for children yeah so on on the bible story so it, it doesn't really feel like unlike superstar which had much more thematic construction has much more mm-hmm. thematic construction to it. This really does feel like it was more a cabaret. They were just having fun. Yeah. Well, you brought up the King singer. So we'll segue into that for a second. Cause <laughs> um, I will tell you that I, as I told um, Amy, when she put us together that when I was in high school, I did um, all state chorus. Yeah. And one of the years, uh, our um, conductor was uh, one of the founding members of the King singers whose name I should have had at the ready. And I was have it, it Simon Carrington. It was chance? Simon Carrington. Yes, it was. It yeah, was yeah, Simon yeah. Carrington. I remember we, we got this, you know, when we got into the, the chorus, we got this little bio sheet that had him listed on it. And I was reading it to my parents. I said, it was Simon Carrington. Oh, he's one of the King singers. I didn't know who that was. And both of my parents stopped and went, he was, he's in the King singers. And I said, yes. And they went, Oh my, Oh, he's very good. Then he's sort of, <laughs> I went in. I went into to practice sort of with this sort of like very, oh my gosh, this guy's really good kind of feeling to it. Um, and he was so excellent, I will say. But he was also very relaxed. I mean, it wasn't, you know, sort of yeah. straight laced. What I was expecting as sort of the idea of, you know, a, a group of British men in tuxes brought a certain amount of like <laughs> stiff upper lip to my mind. Um, but so you could tell people who maybe don't know who are the King Singers and, and, and a little bit about them. Yeah, we're beloved of parents everywhere. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> so the King Singers is uh, an a cappella group, essentially. If you want to be fancy, you can call it a six-man vocal ensemble um, that was founded in 1968 by six guys who'd been at King's College and Cambridge University, and they just wanted to keep singing. And their rep when they were at King's Cambridge was all the music they sang in the chapel. So it was predominantly religious um, choral music. And then they'd also kind of, as choral scholars often did, they sang at kind of parties and feasts and stuff. And that was more fun stuff. It's stuff more akin to barbershop music that mm. people might know from the El Songbook or from any number of um, barbershop groups or um, vocal groups from universities across America. And um, they had lots of arrangers in the group. So lots of music was written by them for them. And I think they just, they got a lucky break because there weren't many groups that were trying to sing all of this music at the same time. There were barbershop groups, there were choirs and choral groups. There wasn't one kind of um, hybrid, kind of like panacea trying to tend to the needs of people who wanted all of it in one go. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were very kind of slapstick and funny, which I think, um, served them very well because again I think a lot of people who presented chorally didn't do so necessarily with a sense of irreverence or humor and I think that was welcome and the group got lucky that its first professional gig in 1968 in London um, on Trafalgar Square um, on a lovely big church there and then they kind of were just again yeah lucky because they got lots of prime time slots so they were on a, a show called the Nana Muscuri show Nana was a kind of a famous British TV presenter and she got them and singer and she got them on every week and they would perform a brand new song from the like the top 40 the charts in close harmony arrangements to the nation and there were only ah. three terrestrial channels right so mm-hmm. everyone knew who the King Singers was uh, who King Singers were rather um, and 
yeah, they toured. They they were lucky. They had a, they had a big break in 1971 where they did a three month tour of Australia and New Zealand, which is when they went fully professional. And yeah, then the the US career kind of kicked off. I think in the late 70s, early 80s, and they did various things on the Johnny Carson show. They did a very famous PBS Christmas special with Julie Andrews. Right, that's what um, my parents would talk about. Yeah, yeah, um, and the sang at the opening ceremony, the Winter Olympics. They had kind of lots of weird and wonderful things and the group has now turned 52 there are only six people at any one time there have only been 28 of us ever so i'm currently the, the guy who's been in the group the longest we're quite a, mm. a young group at the moment so i'm 33 and i've been in the group for just under 10 years um but we tour all over the world still kind of abiding by those same principles of trying to sing all these different types of music doing sort of honoring them all doing them all justice it's all acoustic, so there's no mics, there's no accompaniment, it's just the six of us. If I can bring back beauty to a world of spread the message to master. It's quite funny, but obviously in lockdown, we're, we're at the moment waiting for when concerts start again. But uh, among among lots of places, including you know being in national in the National Cathedral in DC for the last concert of the year this year, we're also in Wuhan in November where coronavirus mm. starts. Oh my gosh! There we are. So there we are. If you if anyone fancies coming with us to the source, that's that's going to be happening in November. Um, we've got a big tour of China. We've got another big tour of Japan later in the year. Um, we we do a, a ton all over Europe. Um, and I think the German countries are our biggest territory here in Europe. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, we're, we, we're lucky because we do loads and loads of different things. Life is never boring. Um, and yeah, it's nice to be part of something which has got this like wonderful heritage, but also because we're in charge of the group from a business point of view or a partnership, we also get to take it in exciting directions. It's not the it's not the, the former guys who own it. It's the six of us who are in the partnership right now who get mm-hmm. to determine its direction. And so that's a really exciting part of doing what we do. And how did you become a member? Uh, no one really knows. I studied. <laughs> I just woke I up studied, one morning and there you were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it genuinely feels like that. I studied. So I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I did loads of different subjects at school. Um, and then when I was applying to university, we don't just, we don't have liberal arts programs in the same way in the States. So you have to specialize when you go to university. And I, I did what's called classics, which is like Latin, ancient Greek, ancient history, philosophy, um, archaeology, whatever. It was about the broadest subject I could do with the most things. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's four years. And, and the, the one at Oxford, like the one at Cambridge is very well respected. And I thought, okay, I don't, this isn't going to lead me to anything in particular because frankly, no normal job means Latin or Greek, but this, this will allow me to be at university for four years to do something which sounds fun and I'll work something out when I'm here. And I mm. was a choral scholar as well. So I sang at a chapel at my college and it was called New College in Oxford, even though it was founded in 1379, which is categorically not new. Right. Um, well, it might be for us. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's the sixth oldest there as well, isn't it? Right, weird? Sure. Anyway, uh, 
Yeah, I know why. There was a, it was originally called the there was a College of St Mary, and then this was the new College of St Mary, and then the College mm-hmm. of St Mary was no longer called. It was called something else, and then we took St Mary from our title, so we were just New College, new and then college. the other one is now called something else. So I mean, it's sort of a bit weird, um, but um, yeah, I was a choral scholar as well. And then when I graduated, I didn't have any knowledge of what I wanted to do I managed an internship at an advertising agency in London and then worked there for a bit and while I was there I got called up and invited to audition um all oh, okay. auditions well all auditions have my invitation sure because um the jobs come up so infrequently and we ask just loads of people we know all over the world do you have any idea of people who might be good mm-hmm. and then we try and draw up an initial shortlist from that and if we can't find anyone then of course we try other methods but it's always worked so far um and so my former director of music from university had recommended me to a guy who sang in the group at the time who was in the group for 26 years um and so that's how they got my name none of them had ever heard of me before i wasn't trying to be a singer so those were, those auditions were in early 2010 and then in may 20, 2010 i was offered the job and i started in september so that's that's kind of how it worked wow that I, is pretty whirlwind I, yeah I, I i get that Man. Well, it's funny because all the other people who are in the final round of the audition with me are all brilliant basses from the the world of kind of, you know, professional choral singing in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely the wild card. And, and it's funny. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful and hopefully I've proven that I deserve to be here. But like, I can't imagine being one of the people who might have appointed me kind of looking at this selection and going like, okay, we're going to go for this guy <laughs> who has absolutely nothing on TV versus all these others who are proven <laughs> to everyone. Anyway, who knows? <laughs> I'm somehow here. Hey, and you're still here. So mm. that's great. Um, well, that's so, but obviously music being with your father was in the, the court, the original children's chorus. It was on in Joseph. You, you have a musical history to your, your family and to your life. And, and you did study choral music a little at university. So yeah, yeah. I, but I was predominantly, so I sang in choirs at school, but I was always like my last instrument. I was predominantly a, pianist and then a violinist and then a violist and then a singer um but oh, you wow. can't the only the only scholarship you can do properly to kind of i was told that it would help you get in if you apply to be a choral scholar at oxford so i was like okay i'll do that mm-hmm. you can't you can't apply to be an instrumental scholar in the same way with any hopes of getting preferential treatment at interview so uh, they they is that because they, they have so option. many or is it because do you have to audition more strenuously? Well, or? no, it's because it's because these colleges were founded so long ago, and it's actually in the statute. It's in like the founding documents of these colleges that there need to be these choral scholars who sing these services every day. Oh, okay. So, like, the college needs these people, um, and like, it doesn't actually help you get in so far as you need to still kind of pass the interview and get the grades, but they can make an extra place for someone if they really need. Do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it actually doesn't really help in my subject, but particularly in music. If you're mm-hmm. applying to do music and you were one of these, they could just create an extra space for, space in music. Certainly in my college, if if they needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I predominantly played the violin really growing up. I was just trying to play the piano actually earlier today. Um, <laughs> of all things, I was trying to play "Any Dream Will Do," ah, and I was like, ah. I started playing the piano when I was three and I was very good till I was 16 and then I completely stopped and I'm now hopeless. And it's really funny now, like it's been more than half my life since I officially stopped piano lessons. And, mm-hmm. and you think that I, I know exactly what my fingers should be doing mm-hmm. and they can't do any of it. Like they're not, they're not, 
I mean, I sit with pianos pretty regularly because I'm in dressing rooms. There are pianos, but like actually right. sitting down and reading music and trying to do it in time with both hands and sight reading is just like a complete no go now. Oh yeah, that's um, a whole other skill. That's not. Oh, it's it's it's. I think about how good I am as a singing sight reader, and it doesn't make any sense about how poor I am as a piano sight reader. <laughs> I mean, it's that it's like I. There's such similar parts. Of, I mean, it's the same part of your brain. It's just mm-hmm. like applying it to a different instrument. No, I can't do it at all. It's just it's because it's a, the motor skill. I think is also part of it, and more than just the brain. Yeah. the brain aspect. Well, it's like of it. It was, what's interesting is like um, technical facilities. Right, like when I'm playing the violin, if I ever get it out, like there are certain quite difficult things I can do immediately, and other things like just trilling, I just mm-hmm. can't do it. Like my just <laughs> my finger, it's like incredibly slow. It's like I'm a robot, and I could just go like <laughs> once every second, like. It's amazing how something which feels like it should be really easy becomes impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, that's a lot of instruments you you play or almost play. So that's pretty. Uh, yeah, but that's the channel. The yeah, Jack of all trades, master of none. Like, yes. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, I I sympathize with that greatly. I would consider myself not in those particular skills, but in other things. Yeah. Um, but I find I see. I think that while there is something, I think for people like you and me who try a lot of different things and can, you know, pick up something and play with it a little bit and then put it back down. There is, do you feel that you, you, at least maybe when you were younger, had this sort of wandering fear where it was sort of like, well, I'm not focusing on any one thing, so I can't, I don't know where I'm supposed to go because it all kind of interests me. I mean, I, I find myself wandering around trying lots of different things and different instruments and different media for entertaining and things because I'm interested in all of it. I don't, I get restless if I sit it just one Yeah, way. but I, I also think it's one of the, the benefits of the modern world, isn't it? I mean, it, mm. it, I think if we think about, I mean, my dad's been a teacher and a vicar his whole life. And so he's taught for now 40 years. He's a mm. kind of career educator. And I think it's going to be, but there will of course be certain people in certain particularly vocational jobs who do that for their whole lives, whether that's being a doctor or being a dentist or something. But I think for a lot of us, we don't now sit here and think, I have one thing which I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to do this for a bit and then I'm going to see where that takes me and that might mean I end up doing something else in a short while. And I, yeah, for a long time, I thought, God, it's annoying, isn't it, that I haven't specialised in any one thing because like, I'm not, not going to be really good at stuff. And actually, I think what, maybe I'm learning on the flip side is how to have skills that are transferable and how to be prepared to transfer them. Yeah. Well, that's what um, I, th- I mean, it's, it's funny that you say that too, because I think that one thing I, when I was in my thirties or early thirties noticed that like people I would hear interviews with who were younger than me, who were su- more successful in the fields I was trying to pursue and <laughs> focused from the time they were, or even anything, not even in fields I was trying to pursue, but had like known what they wanted to do since they were six and had been working every day towards it. And when they were 24, they got to do it and they've been doing it ever since another 28, you know, kind of thing. And that was funny to me, that sort of drive and singular vision. And it took me until very recently to be found that all of my various different skills is actually makes me unique in the things that I'm trying to do. Like when I'm doing playwriting, I'm the only one in the room who studied filmmaking. So it gives me a different point of view in the room and makes me yeah. the playwright. And I'm sure that when you bring that to things like musical arranging or ideas about styles for King singers gives you an extra different sort of perspective that you can go, how about we do this? And then everybody benefits. Well, I was the one guy who growing up wasn't a boy chorister in a cathedral. So like mm. all the other five guys in the group 
sang from the age of eight until the age of 13, thereabouts, um, in their local cathedral. Well, not necessarily their local one, but one was at, um, one was at St. John's College, Cambridge. One guy um, was at Christchurch in New Zealand, Christchurch mm. Cathedral in New Zealand. Like, but they, they sang every day and it was church music and they were really, really disciplined and they learned the rudiments of how to be a really good choral singer at a super young age. Mm. I was a little boy in a community choir and mm. I sang songs by from musicals and by Flanders and Swan and like you know really silly things I remember the first solo I ever got was um I think it's from No Strings and no, it's called No Strings and No Connections it's a Fred Astaire oh sure so mm-hmm. no strings and no connections no ties and I was just sort of fat eight-year-old <laughs> in the back row of the Horsham Children's Choir um with a very high voice and I you know I hadn't been trained um and I only really started to learn about choral music when I was maybe 14. So you are studying about having a musical family. Yes, I did have a musical family. And my dad, weirdly, was also a choral scholar growing up. But we listened to, to, to musicals at home and to, you know, to some classical music. But I would say it was more to kind of, I mean, lots of kind of trashy pop music like ABBA and... Um, <laughs> well, everybody you know, listens to ABBA. That's not. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've explained so much. But, you know, and it's funny because, um, and I listened to a huge amount of pop music in the car. I forced my parents to listen to compilations, which came out mm. like, once every two months. And we, on these long car holidays around Europe, we used to like play these cassettes to death as I sang along to all of them. Um, and what's fun now is that we come to the King Singers. Like, you know, I've, I've got my musical education other ways by playing the violin and the, and I obviously I've sang in choirs, but violin, viola and high level orchestras and playing the piano. And so I, I don't, I'm not at a musical disadvantage, but I do have a different perspective. And I think that the, dare I say, I think the group does benefit from that. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the you know, the, the, there's music they're really familiar with and they can teach me about. And there's music that I'm really familiar with that I can teach them about. And it's not just about the music itself, but also how you approach the music and how music should make you feel. Um, I, I've always, you know, one, one of the things which is interesting to me is that if you're singing in a cathedral, you're not, it's not performing in the same way. You're, you're, you're standing still and you're getting the notes right, but it's kind of part of the ritual almost. It's not about you as a, a physical performer. You're just a vehicle for the music, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if you're watching musicals or films, the song or pop stars, it's all about delivery. It's all about how can I evoke something as the performer in you, the listener, and so, you know, like, I'm always, always saying like, well, how would that make them feel? How would that evoke the audience? And that's, that's different to kind of what music, what, what music fits this purpose? What, as in like, you know, like what, if, if we've got a theme of a program, like what fits in here historically? And how do we, how do we interpret this Renaissance music in the best way? Like those are really valuable skills, but we just, we each bring different ones. Mm-hmm. When, so when you guys are creating do you, when you add material, new material, how do you pick material? I guess would be my question. Do you craft a show to then take it on tour, or do you yeah. look at the show you just brought back and go, "This song's not working anymore. Let's bring in something new." Well, so we do maybe 120 concerts every year, and we try to have maybe up to 10 programs every year, and then some will go from like, over two seasons, say, but it won't, you will have to do two seasons of exactly the same programs, mm. um, and there'll be some overlap between those programs and there are bits in every show that aren't programmed at all, which we'll just choose on the day. And that's usually mm. the lightest stuff. So that, that, that means that we can kind of respond to the audience and also to you know, respond to requests and things like that. Um, what I would say is that 
the kind of process is an interesting one because we have certain projects which are like our real headline projects um which are like our albums and they have programs that go specifically with them and we tour those um but then we also have you know like because we do tour so widely and different presenters in different countries want different things we've got certain programs which are just very much kind of functional okay this is for germany germany one this this german presenter wants a real focus on romantic music from the late the 1800s okay fine so we'll create something for that and then we'll sell that as this year's kind of romantic program in germany and then next year we'll do something different um so the output is is varied because yeah there are some some concerts which are literally just concerts and then there are some which have a big kind of wider campaign around them an album a mission a bit like like almost reason why finding harmony and it's like so it's it's all of these things which are kind of weighed up against each other and then um yeah the stuff when when we we can't change that at super late notice because once it's been programmed and it's out in programs we have to kind of stick to it but when we then create the next set of programs we review okay what worked what didn't okay let's let's try that same principle in this one and let's not do that principle in this other one right Mm-hmm. Um, from for the songs that aren't programmed, which we can change from concert to concert, like then it really is a case of like, this isn't working, this is working, this seems to be moving people in this country. Why? Um, and it, yeah, that's much more dynamic. Do you? How much of a music scholar do you have to be to to sort of keep this going, or how much of a music scholar have you become? I guess would be the other question. I, I think yeah, I know a lot more than I did when I started. Definitely. There's certain stuff I don't need to know because others of my colleagues know it. So mm. like, if I really wanted like really specialist history, so, I mean, a lot of my colleagues studied music academically as undergrads, right? So they, they know a lot more. I don't have any academic qualification in music. So everything I've learned, I've learned just by doing or absorbing. So if I want like definitive specialist knowledge, I want to ask them about that. Uh, I would say that there's, like uh, it's, it's it's hard it's hard to answer because there's uh, there's so much which i think i have learned in my kind of past but it's like you were talking about it it's like i don't didn't know that i was learning mm-hmm. for this job so there's just loads there's loads that i've kind of absorbed in just doing other things which has become relevant to doing this job like you know it, interesting we were talking about you know i come back to the point we were talking about with Joseph, like this idea of like, how do you actually create a, a show with, with interest? What's mm-hmm. good about it? What's bad about it? Like, I think about the number of musical theater shows I've seen, like what makes a great last song before an interval, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. What, what, you know, do, do how do you want, like, I, I always talk about the emotions that I want audiences to feel. Like that for me and like any good thing seeing a show where we're not, usually telling one specific story but it's it's a kind of an emotional journey we're crafting you want to have like moments of like fireworks when people are like completely dumbstruck that's just happened i remember that happened in a a musical theater terms i remember i saw Sutton foster and anything goes on broadway about five years ago Mm -hmm. maybe longer and i just remember like there was a tap sequence in the middle and i just i I don't know it was just for the interval but i remember just afterwards being like i could go home now like that was unbelievable (laughs) or like and there's 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 like the dream scene was in american in paris again like Mm -hmm. the whole audience is like how the hell has this happened i think you want to feel that you want to have a moment of like belly laughter when people are just like doubled over because they find something so funny you want people like crying because they're so moved and like for me 
having seen so many musicals, having a real sense of like when the audience is really on your side, like what 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 are those moments where people just can't believe what they're seeing, like and and try and apply that to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's re- so. But did you do a lot of theater when you were younger, or did you just yeah. what you consider the regular amount for a? I I did so there was a lot of drama at my school, mm. and I did the drama that was there. Um, I didn't do loads of extra, you know, you have like theater camps and stuff like that. I didn't do those. Um, I'm trying to think that the kind of, we, we had a, a, a at, when I was at university, there was a pantomime that we did every year, which a friend of mine wrote as a kind of musical. And I was the pantomime dame in it every year. Um, terrible. I was widow, <laughs> I was like widow twanky one year. It was terrible. Anyway, I had lots of songs. Um, is that just because you were so tall? Is that why they, they cast you? That's, the, yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think my crowning moment in musical theater at school was when I played Riff and West Side Story. I think. Oh, wow. I remember, I sure. remember doing that. And I obviously wanted to be Tony, but I'm a bass. And there was like categorically yeah, no Tony way. Tony like, can't be a bass. <laughs> Tony's not a bass. Like, you know, like, just do the whole thing down an octave. And I remember like there's the big, when you're dead, you stay up. And there's that, like the, the, the big top F at the end of the first yeah. song, the riff sings. And I can do it if, the, if your headphones weren't, if, it, if the earpiece wasn't here, mm-hmm. I wasn't lying down, I would do it for you. But I mm-hmm. think that no one wants to hear it. Like that's approaching <laughs> the top of my range. Um, it's got I, a nice build though. The song does give you a nice ramp yeah. up to it. You don't have to yeah. go too far. So it's, that's also, nice. it's also fun because you just, you just do the first half and you're done, right? You know, right. You, you, you have a really, really major part oh, of the death. half of the show. Great and then death. The really, yeah. yeah, great death and, you're, and it's all over. Um, what else have I done? I've done, so I never did the whole of Guys and Dolls, but I've done a lot of Sky Masterson. Mm. Um, uh, and I was wondering actually, what's it called? That opening... The opening fugue. The fugue for Tin Horns. Fugue for Tin Horns, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about doing like one of the split screen things of that because it just makes me laugh so much. And I, again, I know all the words <laughs> to all three parts, which is terrible. It's like marginally too high. Like I'd, I'd probably have to find mm. a way of doing it. Um, like Take I it. can falsetto the top G at the end, but like uh, there's the whole thing just sits. If yeah. it's in C, there's just a, a, a lot of like ease that needs to sound very comfortable. But mm-hmm. that, like, it's, when, when you get whole things that are written for kind of men's chorus, that makes me feel like I want to. Sure. I want to. I want. I want to do you something. You want to get in on that? Lockdown. <laughs> yeah. Sure. No, totally. That makes sense. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it it really seems like such a rich theater music life experience I, I i think that that you that you brought you, when you became one of the king singers it seems that the most interesting people who do things like that to me are the ones who didn't necessarily just start and study all the way up obviously prodigies are amazing or things like that but it, it is the I, I like somebody who has a breadth of experience they bring to it because it brings something new into what's to what's going on and takes it maybe in a slightly different direction which it seems like was one of the points of the king singers from the jump um was not just yeah. to do, you know, choral music or church music, like you say, to, but to do, you know, the pop song of the week. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take what you're saying now and just record it and then play it to my colleagues. Anytime <laughs> we're doing any kind of creative programming or new planning <laughs> meetings, just being like, guys, I just want you to hear this. Like, I just, just think about the value that we each can bring to this. Right, 
<laughs> well, even if you're the senior member, do you feel you have to you have to speak up a little louder than everybody else sometimes because of your uh, lack of, you know, quote unquote. Well, as you say, there's not as many lines on the CV. Well, no, I think what's interesting is there's a very small age difference now between the, the six of us. Like it's, it's only mm. 10 years. The youngest is 26. I think it's less than that. You know, I think it's nine years. The youngest is 26. The oldest is 35. So um, I'm, I'm the second oldest. And there, but there's another guy who's three weeks younger than me. So there's basically three of us. Between three of you on one side and three of you on the three. other. Yeah. yeah. And well, you know, there's one 26-year-old and then two who are 30, right? So mm-hmm. um, we're all pretty close in age. And I think what um, I like is that there's, like, I think being quite young, um, everyone's quite reactive like you know responsive like people people, um, are able to adapt and that makes I think for for a group that is willing to try new things and to try them quickly um, without too much of a fight Um, so that means that you don't necessarily have to um, raise your voice at all Um, and if anything uh, like there's a weird you know we are an equal partnership so there is no one who is more important than anyone else mm-hmm. uh but the thing i always think as like the person who's been there longest at least i can try and set the tone so if i try and if i try and set the tone of a place that really does listen mm-hmm. and really does like value people's opinions then if i bring one of my own then hopefully people will listen to mine <laughs> you sure. know I mean? it's like it's that it's it's i think doing it that way is way better than trying to force anything on other people because i also don't think that even if your idea is right getting there through a kind of an i told you so methodology is not going to help you in the long run (laughs) well it's any if you've watched any of those you know behind the musics or band history things they break up because of that like that's why groups fall apart because of someone asserting some kind of dominance and other people not responding because it doesn't feel good i mean that's what collaboration is is everybody yeah putting it in you know listen we thought about it and that calypso arrangement of candle in the wind just isn't hitting it so we're going to take yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> i'm here for it well so as we sort of wrap up i did want to ask you as we bring it back to joseph for a second what is your favorite song in joseph and the amazing technical uh ooh, i was thinking this earlier um i I, th- I do love any dream will do but it's a bit obvious i think um uh <laughs> probably joseph's coat because i took such joy when i was younger knowing all the colors yeah i don't know if i can do it anymore like uh i get very close but mm-hmm. you get like fawn and mauve and rose and like all these ones in the second half of the chorus oh anyway, yeah I, I might as well try isn't it red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and lilac and fawn and violet and mauve and chocolate and rose and green and Crimson and something in azure and lemon and russet and grey and purple and white and pink and orange and blue. I got like the way that tim rice sneaks in like yellow in in the middle of like a long of complicated color palettes he says yeah. and then yellow and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it kind of t- but it does tick your ear it brings you back in a little bit to be like oh yeah, a color yeah, yeah. i recognize it brings it brings back in i did also notice this time i, I must say i i am a uh 
a fan of Tim Rice's. And I think his, yeah. I think he got a little lazy when he went to work for Disney. But I think that uh, these early, this this Joseph and Superstar and uh, Evita, he really does some very very clever things. And I think this show yeah. should not be counted out. What one of my absolute favorite lines is. And all these things you saw in your pajamas are a long range focus for your farmers. It's like unbelievably hackney driving, but I. Did but it also. <laughs> It's a rhyme that works better in w- if you have a, a British accent than if you're American. Because yeah, on the American farmers, recording, yeah. it really he really has to push pajamas. All these things you saw in your pajamas are a long-range forecast for your farmers. Then, Again, I was watching it with my housemate last night, and you forget things like um, his astounding cloak. It took the biscuit. Quite the yes. like to take the biscuit is such a funny English phrase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, quite the smoothest person in the district. The district. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I like that they don't. I respect the fact that they don't change them when they do it. You know, I, I never. Nothing's ever more kind of weird than shaking out little Britishisms and trying to make them American because the whole line falls apart. It doesn't. I got that as a you know twelve year old, however old I was the first time I heard this. Yeah, it's it's cool. Like it's a good coat. I get it. I I don't need to know like what <laughs> biscuit. It doesn't take me out of the the moment. It's it's just a fun you know, it's a fun play. Uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I do. Greatly. I do. I yeah. I do. I think my favorite is actually probably yeah, not. I mean, anything was just great, but it's probably the the two opening ones. It's that big. The what and we should talk about this before we go quickly. It's just like the narrator being male or female because mm-hmm. i this recording has um a mixture like the narrator is both female and male mm-hmm. um when you watch the the funny version with donny osmond like the narrator is female always maria friedman right yes um and when you listen to the original one there's no female at all like the 1969 right. the, i don't think there's a female voice on the entire thing I think Roger, the "Come and Lie with Me" love done by Joan Collins, whatever, right. as Potiphar's <laughs> wife, is is done is just sung right. by a man. So, like, I, I, it's it's weird because there's that it does feel quite shrill at times when the when you have a female narrator because it's so high. Because I think mm-hmm. originally it was written for a man, but then they were yeah. like, "We want a woman's voice in here." Um, but yeah, listening back to that opening sequence, which is all done by the female narrator. Mm-hmm. Both on this recording and um, um, the the film is is interesting, but no, I just I love you know all the way from way way back many centuries ago to mm-hmm. right to the end of Jacob's son or Joseph's coat. Sorry, that that's like, that first, yeah, that, that's kind of the bit which if I were if I were to like have my mo- there's an episode of The Simpsons where like Bart is about to be killed by Sideshow Bob and oh yes Bob <laughs> says yeah one last wish <laughs> yeah, right like, yeah I would like I would like you to do the whole of the HMS Pinafore, Pinafore for me. right and, like I think I, that would be mine I was like I'm gonna just perform the entirety of the the opening two songs from Joseph and then I'm the done. titular coat really gets done away with very early in the show and doesn't really come back until the very very end uh, and doesn't actually have anything to do with anything except that it makes his no. brothers jealous enough to kill him. So it is a fu- it's a fun title, but it doesn't really like <laughs> it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. So yeah, it's the kind of thing which would be a a Google bang now if there weren't for the musical. If you were to write the words "amazing Technicolor" and "Dreamcoat" into Google mm-hmm. and this musical didn't exist, you might get one weird right. result from a fancy dress shop in Germany somewhere. Sure. And as it happens, like it's the name of I I was doing this funny this funny thing yesterday where I was talking to one of the former King singers about in the German city of Wuppertal, there is a, 
it's the only mass transit network where there is a monorail instead of a normal oh, like, subway or whatever. Okay. And in 1950, an elephant was put on it from the local circus as a publicity stunt and the elephant fell out of the monorail and almost died. And like you're, um, if you, if you, is the, the kind of thing where you like, if you were to search for the three words of like Bubata, elephant, monorail, you really think that you shouldn't get anything. And suddenly there are hundreds of stories of this elephant Tuffy. Very specific historical event, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's again, okay. everyone the collection Googled, of three words. If I Googled elephant monorail and got anything other than Disney World, I would be shocked. So that's amazing. That's pretty amazing. I really, I really think they need to write something about it. I mean, Dumbo really just funny. happened again. But like, yeah, I mean, it's true. Google, Tuffy yeah. the elephant, T U F F I. Oh, I'm Googling it right now because I'm going to bookmark it and read all about it later. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yep, there it is. Okay, good. Save that for later. That's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> well, history takes some amazing turns. It's also, like we say the word, you were just Googling, though, even the word like technicolor isn't a word that my son would have any idea what that means. No. You know, it just... And also, yeah, that's also a funny thing. Obviously, because color has a U in it in England as well. So it depends True. where this thing is so... Tendicolor versus Tendicolor, like yes. which, 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 can, which can make it hard to find different versions. I spent hours trying to find some information out, and there's only when I took the U out. Right, and then it pops up, right? Cause, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's all published here, right? So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Johnny, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. What, well, um, thank so, you so much, Patrick. Where can people find out about the Kingsingers and what you guys are up to? Just go on our website, kingsingers.com. We're currently doing nothing because no one's doing anything, but we will be on tour. We're in the States all through December. We've got a big Christmas trip, and we're actually on the East Coast quite a lot. Um, oh, good. BDC, so we're finishing the National Cathedral, I think, on the 20th the big concert there for Christmas, but there's loads up around there. Um, we're in the States all the time. We've got another big trip in February, but yeah, all our concerts are there. We're on all the socials you'd expect. Um, mm-hmm. Haven't yet done TikTok, which we probably should, given that we do music and it's sort of based on music, but uh, in time, in time. I'm, in I'm time, almost yes. too old for TikTok. Um, <laughs> funny, I'm so I glad to talking... hear you say that because I'm definitely too old for TikTok. Well, so no, but I was TikTok. messaging, one of my friends is Scott from Pentatonix and I was messaging him yesterday. Oh. He, does ev- he does everything on TikTok. Yes. I'm like, Wait, there's only like five years between us and yet somehow there feels like this massive chasm of like knowledge. Johnny, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day and speak soon. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at Unknown Penguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Johnny Howard for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. you